This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. Well, we had one person that I remember in Jasper, she told me, Peter, I've, I'm very fit, but I've never been on a bike that moves. I've only been on a spin bike in a New York gym. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I literally taught her how to ride a bike that moves forward in the Jasper Hotel parking lot, right? And I went back in, made sure that she had signed all the waivers. <laughs> Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, we continue speaking with Peter Weiland on how we can help people to embrace adversity. If you missed the last episode, Peter is an ex-semi-pro adventure racer and the former owner of Rocky Mountain Cycle Tours. Peter currently serves as a technical director for the youth soccer program in Squamish, BC, where he lives with his family. In recent years, Peter has helped to grow that program to over 700 kids, which is an amazing achievement. This is the second part of a two-part series, as Peter had a lot to share with us, and we decided to break it into two episodes. Here we go with part two. So Peter, fast forwarding uh, a few years, you know, you've got Rocky Mountain Cycle Tours. Um, what were some of the challenges you faced running the company? Um, one year we were just going quite well um, and numbers were growing every year. And uh, I'm not sure if you guys remember, there was another little virus. It was called SARS, right? Um, it wasn't quite as bad as COVID, but it did put a quite a dent into adventure travel that year because uh, I think it was mostly in Eastern Canada, but um, Canada was on the list of countries not too great to travel. So initially we got a lot of people not signing up and when you have week-long trips and not a day trip business, you all depend on on numbers that, because people don't make up their mind, um, oh, I'll go on a week-long bike trip to the Rockies tomorrow, right? So it's mostly pre-bookings. And um, so we find that year quite, quite difficult. So that was, um, yeah, outside circumstances uh, that just, um, happened and then um, I guess when when you grow a tour company that started with something you're really passionate about and you guide a lot of the tours yourself which is why you initially got into it um, as it grows to a size that it can feed your family and you can send your kids to college it becomes more like the normal desk job um, that initially you may have tried to avoid by starting an adventure touring business right so you find yourself doing a lot of admin stuff um, dealing with regulations and parks and um, doing payroll and um, 
uh, HOA stuff. Uh, or yeah, and so it it becomes like a normal office job more and more. Um, plus the risks involved in having an adventure to a company. And I think Chris, you might remember when um, when our trailer disappeared with guests ready to go. <laughs> Those are the moments when you really doubt why why did I get into this, right? Um, trailer full of camping gear for twelve people, all the food in there, all the uh, all the uh, camping equipment, and yeah, there's just not Plan B, right, for that moment. <laughs> I know I uh, actually got to the point where I had to tell Peter, you know, if I called him, I had to I had to start the conversation by saying, "It's okay, Peter. Nothing's gone wrong." I'm just calling to say hello. I, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it got to the point where Peter was always thinking like, "Oh my God, what's next?" And it was, uh, I mean, there weren't too many incidents like that, but you always feel like, "Wow, what could be next?" Right? And so I actually had uh, for for our guides, I had a different ringtone on my phone, so that I wouldn't just jerk up every time someone rang me on Sunday or Saturday, <laughs> and. Uh, so yeah, that that worked better then. <laughs> so when you look back now, what are some of the successes that came from running the company that you're the proudest of? Um, fairly early on, we got um, we got some really good write-ups in magazines. Our trips were rated in outdoor. No, what was it? Um, was it outdoor magazine at that time? I believe. So they rated our trip as one of the top 20 adventure trips um, in, in the world, uh, the, the Ice Fitz Parkway bike tour. And uh, so those were good successes. We got some really good media in, in other places, um, Germany initially, because I still had lots of connections there um, from Camel Trophy and the media and so on. And then also just seeing it grow and um, growing it to a point where it was uh, viable and also viable to be sold on and um, and um, and leaving a little bit of a financial legacy for our, our family, yeah. So you sold the company, what has happened to it since? Uh, one of our guides bought it. Um, and uh, he's continuing to operate it um, out of Canmore. So he brought the company headquarters back home. This is, by the way, one of the biggest regrets I have being not in the Canadian Rockies um, and running Rocky Mountain Cycle Tours. But that's a different story. At the time, we felt uh, we were not hard enough to live Canmore winters that last eight months. And you still have to wipe snow off your porch in June. <laughs> I think, I think Jordy knows all about that. Yeah, we often experience cooler temperatures here. It's been interesting with climate change. I've noted in the Rockies here, there has been some short-term benefit, uh, I think, of climate change, mm -hmm. um, just with warmer temperatures, warmer evenings. But we know that it's uh, doing long-term damage here to the, the glaciers. And yeah, it's not a, mm. it's not a good thing overall. Um, but kind of nice to sit on the back deck in the evening. Uh, where we couldn't a number of years ago. So we're talking about adversity still um, in delivering adventure. Do you think people need to be exposed to adversity or is it something that people should try to avoid? Well, I think I've, personally I've grown through adversity. You gain confidence that you can overcome it. You 
probably react calmer next time you face it. Um, so I think there's a lot of positives to facing some sort of adversity. I think if it's overwhelming all the time, then it's not a good environment, right? Yeah, within reason. Yes, yeah. and, and, and I think the challenge is for if you put adventure products on the market to keep that level of adversity manageable and so that guests can have success, right? Right, but also yeah. not uh, pamper folks along so that they never feel any adversity, discomfort, that sort of thing, right? And there's a difference between That's right, yeah. between discomfort that is, you know, kind of not part of the product that you're looking for, um, as opposed to discomfort that is that is part of the product that you're looking for. Yes, yeah. And I guess the niche that we found for us as a tour company was um, to offer a little bit more of those, a uh, little less pampered and more personally challenging um, cycling uh, trips. For example, we came up with the idea of uh, crossing the two mountain ranges in Canada in one cycling tour and making a thousand kilometer seven day tour, right? And it was actually surprising to see that there is a surprisingly large number of people who are thriving to face that adversity and uh, and want to see if they can do this and, and then feel a tremendous sense of accomplishment in the end, right? And normally when you associate bicycle touring, you think back roads, the very pampered tour here, oh, your left nostril is a bit moist, can I wipe that for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you see that bike's more on top of the van than on the road. <laughs> Sorry, back roads for getting that slight instant. <laughs> Um, so we, while we kept delivering a tour on the Icefields Parkway that was doable for almost everyone, we also had our, we called it the Jasper Band 500, where you would do that trip and, and ride 500 kilometers in five days, because there is a large number of people who love Grand Fondos and who love, uh, riding back to back Grand Fondos and, and seeing if they can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And in that period of time, you know, five to seven days, you, you are more apt to, to have adversity in the weather as well. You know? That's right. So yes, that, that, because that brings the, the adversity. The tour runs in any weather, right? And yeah. 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 It's not like you're just stopping and, and not, not carrying on the next day. So mm -hmm. except yeah. maybe when it snows 50 centimeters in July on the Icefields Parkway, you might shut her down right. for a bit. We had that on not too often, luckily, but it does happen. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, you hunker down in the tents and <laughs> take a bit of time off. But that comes with, you know, that's adversity, but it uh, comes with uh, part of the adventure side of things too, right? Just, mm -hmm. you just take yeah. take what comes to you. So you've had a number of uh, physical and business challenges that you have overcome in your, your career and, and time in business. And it seems that you tend to thrive on adversity and challenge. What's your secret to managing yourself under physical and mental duress? Like, how do you keep yourself going um, while you're looking after others? Well, I think it's uh, <clears throat> one step at a time. I think that was one of the mantras that I learned from some New Zealanders in adventure racing. It's one foot in front of the other, uh, small little goals, um, and you can get to the finish line then, but don't look at the finish line seven days away. Just uh, have small achievable chunks and, and manage it that way. Um, if you just look at the finish line 500 kilometers away at the beginning of, of an eco challenge, it can be overwhelming, right? Or it can be overwhelming in the middle of the race when you're just 
mentally drained and you just want to cry when you um, manage one kilometer per hour through slide out and <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I just listened to a podcast that I, I think it was outside magazine and it was about crying having a good cry out in the wilderness and during adventures and how that's a different kind of crying than you know when you're in a comfort level at home and having problems um, and sometimes you just got to have mm -hmm. a little cry yeah yeah definitely <laughs> and so for that brings us to coaching others i you know you might have some similar strategies to how you keep yourself moving along when there's adversity but uh yeah any any tips or tricks uh coaching points uh, for helping others overcome their adversity while you're delivering adventure yeah i guess i i can mostly look to the bike tours I guided is that, uh, again, look at uh, progress in smaller chunks, right? How about we make it to lunch now and uh, then we go from there, right? And often once they sat down and had lunch and a little bit of food in you, um, maybe feeling a bit warmer on a cold day because the sun now finally came out, um, the, the end point doesn't seem so far away anymore, right? Um, yeah, trying to keep in mind that there's often a rainbow on the other side of the of the dark clouds or the storm and um, that you, you can get through this, but chunk it in in uh, in smaller chunks. And yeah, can we maybe push on just a little bit further, right? And then decide. Do, yeah. do you have any specific examples uh, of that? Um, you know, like from when you've actually, like that, that was sort of generalisms, but any specific examples that... You've, you've experienced yeah I think most of those examples would fall either into a bike tours or skiing where um, I think um, we've had many people who were in doubt after the first day that they could do um, the whole Icefields Parkway trip and so then again, we told them how would we try to chunk it uh, section by section. Um, we, we always wanted to give our guests a chance to finish and not um, at the first opportunity get their bikes on the van and drive them to the next lodge, right? Like some of the other uh, operators like to do because it's a lot easier for the guides if you can load everyone, can get everyone there, right? You, you you chunk it you we tell them where where the next stop is where they can refuel a bit um, how far it is from there and often you see then after the first day or two they see they've done this distance they 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 get a sense that they can actually accomplish the rest of it and uh, I think in in skiing it's um, it's similar building those skills step by step, uh, exposing them to shorter, steep runs that are very steep, but don't look it. It's completely different when you stand on top of a run that has um, 2,500 vertical feet vertical and you look down and it's a double black, then if that double black section is only 50 meters long, right? And then you can say, hey, we can ski this look there's an out on the side um, you you get comfortable in short versions of a steep run and uh, you do that a couple times you then go on a little longer one and so you can build that uh, resilience i also had a person once who um, was a good skier but every time it looked steep um, 
she had doubts and then started leaning to the mountain and everything went out the window. So we skied her first black run in, in the thickest fog you can imagine <laughs> with her even not seeing the black sign and she just did it perfectly, right? And then at the bottom I showed her, look, there's the black sign. You just skied a black run and you stuck to your technique. And that was, I guess, the moment where she found some belief. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Have, have you ever had someone that, you know, you when you first got them, you know, into your trip, you know, it could be winter, it could be summer. Uh, and you just think there's, there's going to be, uh, this is like a large adversity sandwich coming for them and with a side of adversity and, and, uh, how, how is this going to go for them and, and how you sort of work them through that with, with, um, some modicum of success. Well, we had one person that I remember in Jasper, she told me, Peter, I've, I'm very fit but I've never been on a bike that moves. I've only been on a spin bike in a New York gym. <laughs> and so I, I literally taught her how to ride a bike that moves forward in the Jasper Hotel parking lot, right? And I went back in, made sure that she had signed all the waivers. <laughs> and then also made sure I wouldn't ride. I, I did ride behind her initially, but I, she was weaving and wobbling initially quite a bit i just couldn't see it so but she got fine right it's not that hard to ride a bike once you figure it out how it goes straight and yeah we did have a few people who um were similarly less skilled bike riders so we had a few that actually requested to um to do the downhills in the van which we don't often get right so usually some people take the van on the uphills, but uh, we did have the odd guest request a downhill shuttle from from the Icefield Chalet or so. Yeah, sometimes the downhill part is the most scary or most difficult thing. Right. But yeah, I hadn't thought of that mm -hmm. before. You know, if you're running a bike tour that you might want to ask, do you know how to pedal and balance a bicycle? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She had the pedaling down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the, we had one football player, 250 pounds, rode everything in, um, in track shorts, no padding underneath. I think he really suffered. He made it through, he rode in his track shorts and a t-shirt when it was sleeting on him and he wasn't the same when it was 30 degrees, but, uh, made it through. And I think, but he took almost every daylight hour available. <laughs> So we, we had all the guests already at the lodge and circled back with the van and gave him support and everything. And uh, yeah, when he was riding up to Deer Lodge, that last steep bit into Lake Louise, it was uh, hailing. And I told him it's only two and a half kilometers. And he said, Peter, you're not lying to me? <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't believe he was that close. Yeah. Right? But it's a steep hill to finish with. <laughs> If you lie to me, I'll be really angry. <laughs> you don't want to lie to a 250-pound football player, right? No, keep it straight up. Same guy came with us again to Mallorca, but then he chose an e-bike there. So, Peter, how do you balance pushing people without going too far? So, you know, I'll give you an example. A, a few weeks ago, I was uh, guiding some school kids on a backpacking trip, and they had not done that type of trip before 
And so, you know, we really worked hard to pace them. And, you know, I think it was on day two, one of the teachers, you know, had said to us, you know, and this teacher was actually quite new to backpacking themselves. You know, they said to us, you know, wow, you should really like, it would be really good if you could push the kids harder, um, you know, so that they can really test themselves and, and, um, you know, experience more adversity than, than they are. And from our perspective, we're thinking, well, you know, the goal is to actually have them want to do this again instead of crushing them. So how do you balance, you know, pushing people without crossing the line and getting to that point where, you know, they're broken? I guess that's a real challenge, right? And uh, I think when I started out ski instructing in Whistler, I often wanted to show people that one more amazing run which was mostly would have been amazing for me but they they were already shot by that time right and uh, so that run then was like four turns at a time and neither did I enjoy it nor did they right and so it's um, I think trying to tune in where they're at physically and um, asking the questions, helping them make assessments and um, see if they thirst for more than than you do, right? Because I, I think, uh, as I said in the beginning, we all got into this because we're excited about doing backcountry skiing or riding bikes fast and so on. And um, But when you're with the guests, you got to really ask yourself, is this best for the guests and help them make, make those um, assessments as we go. Yeah, I do. I do find that sometimes I have to remind people, you know, that this is supposed to be fun. You know, at some level, yes. this this is actually supposed to be enjoying, you know, enjoyable, and and you should, you know, you should want to do this again. As an instructor, you know, uh, teaching, you know, skiing often, I find you'll have parents or even. Um, partners who are, you know, are thinking that, hey, you need to push the, the other person, you know, whether it's, it's a spouse or the kids, you know, harder, and you have to kind of interject and say, listen, like, they're not going to enjoy that. And they're not going to want to do this again, if we, if we push too hard. Yeah, with kids is often the parents who want you to achieve a certain outcome with them, right, when you're skiing with some teenagers or kids, and the parents often push it more than uh, the kids want to or are ready for, right? Um, but I understand I have three kids on my own and probably with my oldest one made all the mistakes that uh, eager outdoorsy parents could make and try to push him really early into lots of skiing, um, took him up to Lake Lovely Water when he was three years old. It's, uh, for those who know that hike, it's grueling, right, To even to fit people. Um, I mean, I carried him half of the way, but um, uh, he's the one of our family who likes skiing the least and uh, spends, I, I mean, he's really passionate about his computer programming, but uh, it, does, it does take an exceptional uh, deep powder sunny day to get him on skis now, right? So, um, and uh, he's probably the one who has the least interest in outdoor sports or outdoor activities of our kids. And so 
we grow up in these towns like Squamish, Whistler, Canmore is no different, right? Where uh, you almost feel that social pressure. What, your kid isn't in ski school by three or is not in the mountain adventure program? And you feel as a parent, are you a failure because you're not um, exposing them to that? And so with our kids two and three, we relaxed on that quite a bit and realized that it was probably overdone it with Tom. And I've, I mean, with Tom, we've had numerous conversations about the topic we now laugh it off but um, I, I think back to those mornings when I was in stress to get to ski school and had to drop him at, uh, at little kids at three years old Mondays and Wednesdays and was probably not a good experience for him yeah sorry can I say one more thing about um, kids <laughs> because I I think I should share that because it might help some other people avoid the same trap now our son number two um, we didn't put him in ski school at age three at all. Um, he, he went to ski school once a week when he was a four-year-old and uh, within two weeks he had learned everything our three-year-old had learned in one whole season, right? Just because physical strength was so much more uh, prevalent then already. And so I really question that and I, I want to advise anyone to take it easy on their own kids and respect if they don't want to and and don't feel ex as excited about uh, what you are feeling really excited about right we want to expose them to many different things but also leave them options and express their feelings and so on on that yeah i know what you're talking about uh for sure peter yeah i've i've uh made that same uh, mistake myself Hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're not alone. Know, like <laughs> Facebook or your social groups is full of how young your kids have done some spearhead touring, right? And um, so I I went up with Tom, the Stairmaster Couloir, when he was 12, right? And thought that is a great experience for him, but likely it wasn't. And it was only for me like that moment. Wow, my son is amazing, right? He can do this at 12 years old. But he hasn't been out there since then. <laughs> yeah, and then sometimes, you know, even if the parents are, you know, very experienced, active, or their guides, instructors in an activity, it it could it could be worth it for you and for them to have them experience that with another person as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's a uh, there used to be a sign at the Lake Louise Ski Hill. I don't think it's there anymore. But on as you entered the lodge, that said uh, Lake Louise Ski Hill saving relationships since 1972 or whatever it was. I've seen that. Yeah. Yes. And it's it's true, right? It's sometimes best to have, you know, spouses, children, uh, cousins, aunts, uncles, maybe put them onto someone else for some of these experiences, at least early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or have other kids with them, right? So they suffer together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it sounds like you've learned a lot, you know, raising your own kids. What kind of lessons have you been able to apply to running the soccer program then? I mean, you have 700 kids that you are um, basically managing in, in your program in Squamish. How has that, how, how has your own experiences affected, you know, your philosophy and, and your strategies? Oh, I could fill a whole podcast on that topic, Chris. Um, soccer as a sport has changed from when I played it in the 
70s or 80s where it was very physical running oriented now uh, it's so much more technical right and um, coaching research and methodologies have involved so much that uh, it's all about um, creating age group appropriate um, coaching sessions and so um, you don't learn to read Shakespeare in grade one and so you don't need to learn to play 11 aside soccer on a big field and taking headers um, when you're a six-year-old right but some parents still think when we play 3v3 without goalies on very small goals that is not the real game what are you doing here right um, but it is actually age group appropriate steps and so um, my biggest mission that I'm on is um, trying to coach our coaches to understand that we grow our kids uh, step by step and we follow um, curriculums that are working worldwide, right? When you look at um, how most kids in countries that are that are, have far less coaching resources than North America has, when you look at Brazilian kids or the kids in the projects in France who are probably the best soccer players in the world right now. They all grow up playing 3v3, 4v4 street soccer all day long because that is their let out from an otherwise miserable life, right? They're often not exposed to coaches until they're 12, 13, 14 years old and are already amazing footballers and then they get a little bit of structure into their game. So a lot of what we try to do is um, for our younger kids to recreate the street soccer experience uh, where we coach relatively little and it's a lot play-based and trying to make decisions and solve problems um, without a coach telling you here dribble from A to B, pass from cone A to C or dribble around these cones. Everything needs to be decision-based from, from a young age on and we want to have them play in game-like environments where they constantly make decisions. North America has not produced a worldwide a world-class midfield player which requires a lot of decision-making and creativity in, in spite of throwing the most coaching resources at kids because we our coaches are often falling into the temptation of trying to tell the kids everything they need to do when you watch on a soccer sideline it's often pass shoot run here right and pass to ollie and shoot right so how can kids make their own decisions when the coaches are trying to make them all for themselves? It it sounds like you were watching my soccer games when I when I was a kid growing up, actually. All right. Yes. Well, mine were not that dissimilar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe Peter, I'll just ask you uh, if there was one piece of equipment advice that you could give to uh, to the audience. What would what what's something that you generally just don't go without, can't, can't do without that you found really useful that you could pass on? My phone. <laughs> and keep track on Strava. If it's not on Strava, it didn't happen, right? <laughs> no, I think if I would go for any, um, any more serious backcountry, I would definitely have like a satellite uh, way to communicate. Um, like any of those devices that allow you to send messages, especially if you're going for little solo missions. Um, I've done quite a few backcountry solos and they don't seem far away, but uh, you don't want to be caught out without being able to communicate. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it doesn't take much for even a very mm-hmm. experienced person to have right. things go sideways. And uh, just having that, that life yeah. link out uh, can make mm-hmm. all the difference. So you don't want to do something over extreme just because you carry this then, right? That's the other trap that many people, I think, fall into easily. Um, because they think it's just a phone call away, we can now go bananas. That's the other side of technology, right? Yeah, it doesn't prevent the slip or the the slip, the fall, the overnight uh, in bad weather that you're not prepared right. for, all that yeah. kind of stuff. You still got to be self-reliant mm-hmm. out there. Yes, I'm still glad I have my compass and map skills because your GPS battery might run out, right? And I remember the first uh, trip I did on the spearhead. Um, the spearhead Traverse was a three-day trip with some guys from the Alpine Club of Canada. And uh, our GPS did not work properly. And we had whiteout for two days. And But we were able to do it with map and compass, the old-fashioned way. Right? Uh, I'm glad for those orienteering, running uh, clinics in high school that I had that gave me a solid base for going in the backcountry. Yeah, and if you have a compass that's got a fold-up mirror on it, you can check that all your sunscreen is evenly that applied too. to it. So it's got, <laughs> yeah. it's got side benefits. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Peter, this has, been, uh, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for this, Peter. We're going to let you go here. All the best with your soccer program and future adventures. If you're looking to find Peter, you can find him teaching skiing at the Whistler Blackcomb Snow School and working with the Squamish Youth Soccer Association. So when it comes to helping people to embrace adversity, Chris, what were some of your key takeaways from what Peter had to share from this episode? Well, Jordy, Peter had a lot to say, that's for sure. Uh, There are two things that I'm going to highlight that people may not have picked up on uh, that were definitely my takeaways. The first one is that running an adventure business is really hard. A lot of people over the years have asked me why I don't run my own business. And having worked for a few people, including Peter, I can see why. It's super stressful. The number of times I ended up calling Peter because we had some kind of an emergency, whether it's the van breaking down or the trailer getting stolen or There was a year once in 2013 uh, for our listeners in uh, the Calgary area and Alberta area. You'll know the giant flood that happened in 2013. Well, um, Jeannie and I were actually, we had a trip starting in Calgary on a Saturday and the flood happened Wednesday night and we were in Lake Louise and we ended up having to drive all the way, almost all the way back to Vancouver from Lake Louise and then all the way up to Jasper and then down. We actually didn't even know if we could start the trip. And there was one uh, section on, I remember Friday night, uh, Peter is like, should we just cancel the trip? And we were in Kamloops, uh, BC at the time. And we said, no, we can make it. And so uh, running your own business is full of adversity. uh, And he did a great job uh, with that. And one of the things that helped him is having a sense of humor. And that's something that we often see with people that are dealing in, uh, with uh, high stress situations is that they often will will make it through with that sense of humor. And Peter, um, you can tell from his stories, he, he definitely found a lot of funny bits uh, in them. Maybe not always in, in the moment, but if you can find them in the moment, then um, you'll reduce your own stress. Jordy, what stood out to you? Well, I agree, Chris, that having a sense of humor is critical and, and Peter really seems to be able to weather 
probably any storm that's thrown at him just with his kind of dry European sense of humor that just, uh, you, you think he's talking straight and then you realize, no, he's actually having fun with you and he's having fun with himself. So some of my takeaways for getting people through adversity, it can involve setting small milestones. And that's one of, one of the points that Peter had. Nothing really builds confidence like success. And sometimes people need small successes. And this applies to finishing long journeys and learning new skills. Another takeaway was that for kids, uh, just don't push them. Everyone has a limit. And for kids, that limit is often quite a bit lower. Just because someone can do something doesn't mean they will enjoy it. And you can really put them off pretty much forever, uh, quite easily at that stage in their life. And so just because they can finish something doesn't really mean they will want to do it again. I felt that way in ski racing when I was growing up in Jasper. And it had to have some element of fun to it and kind of playfulness because otherwise, yeah, I just wouldn't have stuck with it. You know, I'm not there doing that as a job. I'm doing it to have adventure and activity and, and feel fulfilled in my life at that point in my life. And so otherwise, I would not have carried on as long as I did. And then just recognizing the value of adversity and communicating it. Sometimes letting people know that what they're doing is hard, but it will be worth it. Just that alone can be enough to help keep them going. Yeah, those are all great points, Jordy. Now let's turn it over to you, the listener. What were your takeaways? What stood out to you? You can share your thoughts, stories, or insights with us via our social media feeds or by emailing us. You can find all of our contact information at deliveringadventure.com. Also, before you go, we need your help. To keep this podcast going, please take a moment to share it with your social network. Adventure is best when it is shared. To finish off this episode, we have one last funny story from Peter. Bruno woke up late that morning. It was his uh, day to ride and I had already done all the van check-in so I wasn't ready and so he he came running out when the group was ready to leave basically and uh, didn't have his cycling gear on so I said how about you start riding with them and um, and at the next stop you can put your cycling gear on and um, so then he got his bike ready but the guys were kind of impatient and left and it was like a group of road bikers and they were all decked out in the latest lycra gear right or had all their own expensive ten thousand dollar bikes with them and then uh, as i pull by with the van i see bruno doing a flyby in a t-shirt and a baggy pant and in his flip-flops and he just flew by them right and that was the talk of the trip for the end of it they couldn't just believe what they had seen right yeah bruno was a supremely fit um adventure person, he's a backcountry ski guide as well.